Welcome back to another week of the Look Back podcast. I am your guest, Taylor Cirillo, and I am so happy to be with you this week. I owe you an apology. I am going to be 100% honest and just admit that I have not figured out how to balance the show with my day job. It is something I am still working on and please forgive me for missing last week. It will not happen again unless there's an emergency or it's a holiday, but in the near future, it will not happen again. But also, I should let you know that I realized you don't know anything about me. I'm doing a show about career and you have no idea what I do, who I am, where I live. You know nothing. (laughs) So my apologies. I will redeem myself by being your interviewee next week. I am very excited. I am going to be interviewed by my partner, David, and I hope it will give you some insight into why I started this show. But if you have any questions at all, please feel free to email me at the lookbackpodcast at gmail.com. No matter how big or how small the question is, I would love to hear from you. And I think we could have a lot of fun. So send me an email and we'll get into it. We'll go as deep as you want to go. But enough about me. We are here because today's guest is going to tell us a bit about art. Oh, I am so excited to introduce you to Teal Baskerville. Teal is not a woman you will ever forget. Both gentle and passionate, she is a part of a small cohort of humans living out the career goals they set for themselves as teenagers. We all know those people who said they were going to do it, and they did. That is Teal. My admiration for her is endless. And during today's episode, I believe you will leave understanding why. Teal grew up in Washington Heights with her mother, dad, and sister. Her mother's love for creativity allowed Teal to explore all forms of art from a very young age. And it was this curiosity that would eventually lead Teal to where she currently resides in Williamstown as the head of public programs at the Clark Art Institute. During our time with Teal, we will learn about what it means to be a curator, the limitations of an art history major as a black or POC student, and finally, how art institutions can begin the process of inclusion and healing. I know I said this last week, but this is a good one. I hope you enjoy our chat. So growing up, what did art mean to you, whether that was music or nature? How was it embedded in your childhood? My mom was a really 
and is a really creative person. And she always she's we spent a lot of time together making things i mean it you know i think when i think about making as kind of like a holistic practice you know it's not just making art but making food making music listening to music i mean just the sort of breath of creative practice i think you know my first sort of love with my mom was was cooking and was mm. we used to watch the food network channel and that was like my bedtime story was <laughs> emerald emerald agassi and bam with salt or whatever. Um, and it just really, it instilled in me the importance of making and the, this idea of creative practice and creativity as really critical and foundational to life. Um, mm. And not just as a hobby or something you do to seem like a well-rounded person or to be mm. a well-rounded person. Mm-hmm. And it, that, you know, I think that really came that butted up against at the same time, my parents' ambitions for me to be successful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Your family was very instrumental in your creativity. And I truly believe that some of our, some of what we do in life is predestined, mm. which brings me to your name, Teal. Is there a story behind your name? Well, the story is that my mom decided that I would be named Teal. I think mm-hmm as soon as she found out that she was having a girl and was just like, Hey, Joel, to my dad, you know, her name's Teal. It's a girl. Her name's Teal. Like Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we're moving on. (laughs) (laughs) Your opinion is not necessary. (laughs) Like no need for feedback. Just letting you know. (laughs) (laughs) But a lot of people will ask me like, Oh, you know, such an unusual name, such a creative name is Mm -hmm. your mom an artist. And, Mm -hmm. and I think about that all the time because again, my mom, is this incredibly creative person. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, even, you know, even naming me something as weird as Teal is, you know, I think like a really brave and kind of liberating yeah. gesture. And I didn't yeah. find it liberating. I still sometimes don't because, you know, it was, it made me stand out more mm. in ways that I didn't want to stand out or, you know, mm-hmm. it made people, you know, I think about that Warshan Shire poem all the time about, naming and about Mm -hmm. allowing, you know, letting your name linger in people's mouths and giving like allowing your name Mm -hmm. to have space and to, you know, the fact that it requires time for people to know how to pronounce or to understand or to question you about that. That's not a bad thing, but that's actually like, you know, that's powerful. And I certainly did not feel that. But I think, you know, my mom is someone who in a different life, I think would have had a career as a kind of artist or a career in, you know, my mom always talked about loving music. I mean, Mm -hmm. I grew up in a very musical household, Mm -hmm. not that we play music, but we're a household where music was really important. I mean, I think it's like so many black kids can relate to this. Like, you know, you grew, you wake up on Saturday morning and there's like three radios going. I thought I was going to sleep in, but I'm clearly not. Yeah. It's like time to clean. Right. Here's the soundtrack. (laughs) And it's always Motown in my house. It was always Motown. Mm -hmm. But yes, I think, you know, I think in another world, my mom would have been, perhaps an artist or a music teacher, or I think, you know, had she be been allowed to pursue a career in the way that I've been able to, which mm. is just from a place of, of, of genuine interest and passion, 
I'd be very curious to see what she does because I think it would involve teaching and creativity because those are, you know, those are the things that she's imparted to me. So I think, yeah, the name Teal was like, yeah, as you say, it was, it was, it was, I think, leading me on a path to, to the kind of expansive life that my mm. mom always sought for me to have. So in 2010, Wow. Can you believe that's so long ago? No, girl. <laughs> I cannot. <laughs> so in 2010, you were able to shed the restrictive Upper East Side education and you went to Williams. What did you major in there? And eventually you became a curator. So mm. what is the path that you took to get there? So I came to Williams and I applied to Williams with every intention of being an art history major. I mean, you know, Williams is sort of, Williams is, is not sort of, it is, it's very well known for its art history program. There are several past and current directors of prominent art museums who are Williams alum. I mean, the Williams mafia, art history mafia is, is a thing. But when I came to Williams, I was really dismayed art history is westernized or is it not a westernized it is a western discipline you know and there are attempts to infuse other perspectives and different cultural ontologies into the way we think about art history but it is fundamentally like a western imperialist project there was one exception there was one professor who became my personal tutor who taught contemporary Latin American art. You know, the work that we were looking at was a lot of it was, it was socially engaged work and it was political. And there was this sense that like art does not exist outside the mechanisms of social life and politics. Like art is foundational to that. And it's, you know, it's ironic when you will be in a Western you know, or like a classic art history 101. And we'll talk about propaganda and how art has been used as a tool of propaganda. But then when we want to look at the present moment or when we want to look at how some art is a propaganda for white supremacy, for patriarchy, those those conversations often get stifled. And I, I think, and I know at Williams that's starting to change. And I think in a lot of places it is, but it wasn't, that was the case when I was in, when I was in school, there was no space to talk about blackness in mm. art. Was there even an elective you could take? <laughs> African art? When I think about the African art section in museums, the way I always felt was that it was placed there, not for me as an African-American viewer, but for a white European, a white American, white blank fill in right. to confirm their beliefs about me mm-hmm. and about our history and about the African continent. That's always how I felt it was framed. Yeah. In the museum. Well, and I think that's right. I mean, a lot of, a lot of African or a lot of museums collections referred to their African holdings as works of, of primitive art for a very long time. I mean, it's, it's relatively recent that the language has, has shifted around that, but it was, I mean, you know, but if we think that all museums, their sort of origin point for all museums is, is both these kind of these formal salons that aristocrats used to hold in their house, which were, you know, social gatherings. And at the same time, also these cabinet of curiosities, which were very much, you know, inextricably linked to the imperialist project. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a way of, of showing the, the range of, 
of the world, the full scope of the world, but it was more than just displaying. It was about categorizing it and containing it, you know, being able to have a dominance over it, that if we can display all of these curiosities, if we can, you know, give them labels and assign them categories and we therefore own the world. I mean, you know, that's a simplification of the logic, but that's the fundamental logic. And yeah, it's, it's really, it's a logic that museums I think are being forced to confront now that, you know, that is their origin, but it's, it's something that I think a lot of museums are struggling with where do you have to confront that? Like, what are the alternatives to it? I think that's the big question. Mm. That actually leads me to my question of what is the role of a curator, which we've been dancing around, but I read a definition that the curator's role has four components. The first being to preserve the heritage of art Mm. Two, to be a selector of new art. Three, arranging the work. And four, to connect art history. Mm. Interesting. So Uh, do you agree with that definition? That's very much... That's, that is, I agree with that insofar that I recognize that is the history of of the profession that I'm in. Like that is, that is what being a curator has meant for so long. I think what is absent from that is our audience. There's no mention of audience, no mention of interpretation. I think interpretation. And I think that the work of a curator, I mean, we talked about this a lot during my master's course. And this is what happens when you get like 20 people to study curatorial studies for two years. You talk about, you know, the curator and like the, <laughs> the meaning of, of, curator, of curatorial work. But, you know, the word curator comes from the Latin word to care. And, you know, historically for curators has referred to the care of the objects mm. and That's still very true. I mean, you know, a lot of institutions, a lot of the the cost of of operating a museum goes towards the care and preservation of Mm -hmm. of collections or, you know, the preparation of exhibitions. And I don't think that is a bad thing. I think, you know, these objects need to be cared for in order that we can continue to tell stories through them. But, you know, the idea of caring for our audiences and our communities as well is relatively recent, but that's, Mm. you know, a topic of conversation in in art museums. And I shouldn't say it's relatively recent. I mean, there's a more complex history than I even fully know, or, you know, I'm able, I know of it, but that I'm able to really to, to speak fully to, but you know, I mean, there's always been a rich sense, I think, you know, for, uh, for museums that, were created to serve specific communities, often communities of color. There's always been a sense that like we are here for the community and that we are, we have a, you know, a public obligation. And I think a lot of institutions have been moved and honestly have been forced to, to take this view. And a lot of, a lot are struggling with it. I mean, you know, I think to what degree, institutions understand what their resources are Mm -hmm. is still limited. I know research is a big component of who you are as a curator. So how does that help you begin the process of Mm -hmm. putting on a public program? Now, being in an institution, it's very important that 
public programs reflects that institution. So I start with the mission and I think about, you know, what what kind of museum are we? And at the Clark, you know, we are a collections based museum. I try to think about how what we're doing speaks back to the collection or the collection informs it. I think programming is a storytelling tool. There was a project by the artist Simone Lee at the new museum. It was an, it was part of her residency there. And she led wellness sessions where she basically used her residency as a space to create space for others. So you could come to these wellness sessions and you could bypass the admissions charge. Or, you know, she would have these evening sessions that were specifically for groups that she was inviting into the museum. Hmm. But they were using that museum space. They were getting some level of promotion or or, or PR around them, not as Hmm. a way to you know, it was it for me, it was a way not necessarily to to be boastful about that work, but to like let y'all know, like we're here. Mm. You may not see it because it's not for you, but we're here. And I think about that so much. And when I'm approaching public programs, you know, how can we create spaces within the space of the museum? So how can we do that thoughtfully? Um, so a lot of my research is also thinking like, you know, about the physical space of the building. Like mm. it's again, it's not me with my head in books the way I thought it would be. <laughs> but it is so much about so much, so much of the research now is conversation. It's, it's being physically in that space and walking around and thinking about mm. how I navigate it. You know, a lot of my research is attending our own public programs. And that seems, you know, mm. obvious number one. But I, you know, when I first took this job, I had no social life because I was just constantly at public programs. And it's kind of funny because it's like, I probably won't go to every single program, you know, that we produce in the future, you know, but it was really important for me to be at those programs and not even watching the program or like, you know, focusing on the speaker, but to watch our audience and to mm. like, you know, sort of sounds like I'm stalking people in the museum, but to, <laughs> to watch how people move through that space mm. and so much of, yeah, you know, I think that the space and observing how through programs we make different, you know, we create spaces, but also how we people create their own spaces in the museum, you know, like watching where people gather, you know, we have the Clark has a 140 acre campus. So I'm also thinking about that space and how being out in nature is equally important of a cultural experience as mm-hmm. being in our galleries. So yeah, a lot of it, a lot of it, again, just watching people, <laughs> watch, like studying the space and how people move through it. That's so much of the research. The word inclusion is very crucial, I think, in this conversation, because often galleries and museums and generally art institutions, they take the approach of visibility rather than inclusion. So as someone embedded in the museum space, how do you ensure that despite the fact that your community is predominantly white, you are also being inclusive to the Black and POC members of Williamstown. 18-year-old me would have never thought I'd be back here. But even, you know, honestly, 25-year-old me did not think Mm -hmm. that I would be working in a small, predominantly white town. What brought me to Williamstown and what excites me about Williamstown is being in a college community because Williams makes Williamstown different Mm -hmm. than it might otherwise be. I mean, there are Black and brown students here, There are black and brown families here that have moved here like myself for their jobs, but then they stay here. And, you know, and so then you, it's also Williamstown 
there, you know, people refer to Williams as the purple bubble, because when you are at Williams, you forget about the rest of the world. And you're in this very small community that is so much energy is focused towards the college and the college is such a hub mm-hmm. in the community that you think you are at the center of the world, um, yeah. which just sort of already compounds teenage, early 20 arrogance. Um, <laughs> so, you know, and I felt like that, I felt like we were at the center of the world, but Williamstown or the Berkshires, I should say, has a very rich black history. I mean, W.E.B. Du Bois was born in Great Barrington, mm-hmm. which is, in South County, which, you know, it's just 40 minutes away. Elizabeth Freeman was the first black woman in the state of Massachusetts to sue and win her freedom. Wow. Uh, And she had formerly been enslaved in Sheffield and then went on to reside as a free woman in Sheffield. So, you know, there's black people are always in places that we yeah. just choose to describe as, as all white, you know, it is predominantly white up here, but it's not all white. And so when I think about programming, I think about, you know, there's scales of programs, all programs have to, or all, you know, a holistic schedule always has to be balanced, but how do we start speaking to communities who we've been ignoring because not because they haven't been here, but just because we've been ignoring them is, is, is a really challenging question. And I think, you know, people will disagree with my approach to it or my views on it. But I think it starts again, the same way that structural change starts. I mean, this is a part of structural change. Like it's, they're all hand in hand. And I think it starts with things that are not going to appear on our calendar. In doing research for this interview, I had the privilege of discovering one of my favorite artists. You know, it's very recent. So maybe favorite isn't the right word, but I love his work. His name is Olaf Eliasson. A quote that comes to mind is, he says, when you look at a work of art, it is as if it is looking at you. You are the one who's being listened to. Mm. So when you think about your career 10 years from now, how do you hope you've helped Black and Brown visitors feel listened to? Ooh, that is a good and challenging question. It makes me think about a conversation I had recently with one of my mentors. You know, we were talking about the idea of a door as a metaphor for structural change. And it's like, you know, maybe one person gets an elbow in and then the other person behind them gets the shoulder in. But, you know, eventually you get the whole body in there. And I think for so long, we thought that just like, again, being in these spaces and holding space, that that was enough or getting through that door, that that was enough. But it's like, maybe we get in the door and then we rip the fucking door off the hinges. Like, you know, I, I think that there's still a lot to, to think about what we do after we rip the door off the hinges. Yeah. But, you know, I would say that in 10 years, I hope to at least be like unscrewing a few of those, those mm. screws on the door hinge, you know, like I want to be slowly working to rebuild the world of museums because I think I want to be working more broadly to rebuild the world in 10 years. I hope, and I have no clue what this looks like, but like, I, I hope to imagine new ways of being new possibilities for the work that we do and how our work serves people and how it serves the greater goal of making, you know, our, our wider worlds a safer, more livable, breathable place to be. But I don't know what that looks like in a kind of tangible sense. But I think about this also a lot. Like I, you know, 
I am a light-skinned Black woman. I have a lot of proximity to whiteness just in the way that I was raised. I mean, I went to private, we, we went to high school on the Upper East Side, you know, like, so, you know, I, I, I think about a lot how like, there's already a fluency for me in navigating these institutional spaces. Mm. But what I guess I'm trying to unlearn is that sense of performing in mm. those spaces versus actually holding space or making space within those spaces. So I guess, yeah, that's what I, I hope that in 10 years I am braver so that I can continue to the work of making space rather than just being in that space. What advice do you have for young men and women following in your footsteps? Mm. Don't wait for institutions to validate your work. So much art and arts organizing is done on a daily basis at the individual or collective level without any institutional support or recognition or acknowledgement. And then, you know, you'll see years later that you know, now we're in a moment where institutions are clamoring to kind of get their hands and get their logo on these community driven, socially engaged projects. So don't wait for institutions to validate. You don't feel like you are not a curator until a museum gives you that title. Don't think your work is your job. Like go into curating because you love what art can do. Because you ain't gonna get a lot of money. There's not tremendous job security in this field. There's tremendous precarity in this field, especially for young professionals and especially for young black professionals and young professionals of color. So don't let your work be your job. Like don't wait for institutions, just start the work. Being creative about what resources you have rather than waiting on institutional resources to aid your work, that's the big thing. Well, Teal. Thank you so much. Thank this you, was Kay. so insightful. I feel as if every time I speak to you about your work, I'm learning something new. So I'm so grateful that you spent your Sunday with me to share your knowledge. Thank you for having me. I, I love talking to you. Oh, okay. Bye. Bye, Tay. Hey, guys. Thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed that episode, please do me a huge favor and rate, review, and subscribe. Also, if you have any questions or comments about the show, please feel free to hit me up at the Lookback Podcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. And until then, have a wonderful week. And I'll see you next time. Bye.